Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. It's estimated that about 10% of people who get COVID-19 are still having symptoms a month later, often debilitating and usually pretty scary. With some 250,000 or more people testing positive in the UK each week, GPs need to be ready to help. In today's episode about long COVID, we find out how English National Opera are helping patients with difficulty breathing. And we talk to Melissa Heitman, a respiratory consultant at one of the first clinics for people with prolonged symptoms of COVID-19, and ask who GPs should be referring to these new services. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by Navjoy. Hi, Navjoy. Hi, I'm Navjoy Lada. I am head of education at the BMJ and a locum GP. And Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. So this is our first episode really focusing on long COVID, which... um, it's probably been a bit too long in coming. Uh, and I'm thinking probably today we'll only be able to just dip our toe in the water. It's There's such a lot I think we can talk about. Um, and I suppose I thought I'd start by just saying to any listener listening, you know, if you have long COVID or if, you know, you've, you think there's a particular angle or something you'd like us to, to cover or someone to, to interview, then please, you know, get in touch because we, we think we can do more on this. And, you know, we're I suppose we're covering this in lots of different ways in the BMJ. I mean, what do you think we should be calling? What should we? What term should we use today? Because it, it's it's strange, isn't it, that everyone everyone calls it long COVID, but then when you get sort of into the more kind of official or academic literature, I think people seem to edge away from that term. So the nice guidelines that, that recently came out call it uh, managing the long term effects of COVID nineteen. Uh, yeah, what what do you think that's all about? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. why, I mean, long COVID seems to be around and what's kind of stuck, but I don't Mm. know why, why that's not good. (laughs) Like, why don't people like that? Does it sound too informal or? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either, but I suppose there is something a bit, a bit informal about it. Maybe, yeah. Isn't there? uh, Anyway, Jenny, uh, and yeah, I mean, what's your take on long COVID? Let's call it long COVID. So Jenny, you're in New Zealand where you've only had a couple of thousand cases of COVID at all. Um, what, what are you thinking about long COVID and how's it over there? Um, I'm thinking about my intense <laughs> case of bystander's guilt. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, long COVID is something I've read about, but really not something I've seen in practice. Um, I'm curious to get a sense from both of you, like what what kinds of presentations are you getting? What what concerns are you seeing? What what's coming up in practice with respect to long COVID? Well, I mean, in London, of course, where we've had huge um, spike in, in cases of COVID, we're certainly seeing, or I'm seeing, lots of patients with with these symptoms. I, I suppose it typically is that the fatigue, um, breathlessness. Uh, chest pain and and that sort of brain fog uh, seem to all, all be very very common um, and and scary for people. I think people are often just very frightened and you know it's frightening mm. to have any of those symptoms. I suppose um, 
Yeah, yeah, same, same here, and maybe with a bit of dizziness added in as well, Um, and and Mm. just a general feeling of like you know um, from patients of like what is happening and how long will I feel like this for um which I think is incredibly difficult to experience and very difficult to you know provide reassurance about um so I think Mm. we we don't know and often the the thing that you are able to say is that you know this is affecting lots of people um and we're learning more about it and I think that has been one of the Mm. the sort of um features of it is actually a lot of um patients have found sort of support in one another and and uh, I think there's been a lot of uh, yeah support advocacy and learning that has come from this kind of sharing of experience I'm sure it must also provide some solace to be able to come to their GP just to feel heard you know like this is what I'm going through even even if they know before walking into your office that there isn't necessarily going to be something that you can do. Just think, to be heard yeah. must be so important. Yeah, I think you're right. And actually we published um, one of our What Your Patient Is Thinking articles on exactly this, that um, a patient who was navigating, you know, uh, this kind of confusing and frightening set of symptoms had said that, you know, even with all the uncertainty, what what would have been so useful was to just feel, have that acknowledgement and, you know, and being listened to by my GP. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, Jane, do you remember Josh from uh, one of our episodes? Yeah. Ages ago now. Uh, so so he, he works, or has just finished working at, at our practice and him having that experience of, of going through this himself uh, he built up <laughs> quite a big really? cohort of, of patients who he was sort of checking in with regularly. And uh, it was really lovely, actually, to see that, you know, to speak to some of them, you know, when you happen to, to talk on or, or about different things and, and just saying how useful that has been for them. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. So what I thought would be really useful in this episode is to hear from somebody who's really been seeing lo- lots of these patients uh, and, and really give us a, a, a maybe a more systematic view on, on what the presentations are, what the um, maybe some of the options for helping them, uh, but also from a GP's point of view to to talk about you know what sort of patients should be seen in the in the secondary care clinic uh, and maybe who we can manage more. Um, within primary care. So I spoke to Melissa Heitman and she's a, a respiratory consultant at uh, University College London Hospital. Uh, and she's been running their uh, long COVID clinic, I suppose, for want of a better <laughs> description, uh, since uh, I think it was May last year. So my name's uh, Melissa Heitman. I'm a respiratory consultant at University College London Hospital and I'm the clinical lead for the COVID follow-up service. Great. Well, thank you for talking to me. Um, I, I know you've, you've had that service running since May and I, th- I think the thing I'm most interested in hearing from you uh, is you know, for, for GPs listening, um, you know, what, what have you learned so far about 
the sort of patients who you can perhaps help the most in a service like yours and, and who perhaps we should be maybe prioritising for referral? Yes, so um, we've um, been continually learning as we go. Um, and for various reasons, we've had a quite inclusive kind of referral criteria from the start. So we've been seeing quite a wide variety of patients, those referred by their GP, those who've been um, discharged from our own emergency department and also are in hospital discharges. Um, and I suppose as the pandemic has progressed, what we've been, um, the type of presentations we've been seeing in our clinic has also um, slightly changed as the months have gone on. Um, and initially, we thought this was um, going to be a, a matter of uh, respiratory complications um, with perhaps lung fibrosis or uh, pulmonary emboli. But, but we realised that actually uh, the complications relating to COVID are very much multi-system. Um, so I think... Um, Really, by the time we were get, seeing patients who were at 12 weeks, we were struck by um, how long lasting the symptoms can be for some people. Um, and and the, type, the, the main burden of symptoms um, has always been uh, fatigue um, and breathlessness. Um, and we started to notice um, some patients showing features of autoimmune dysregulation with tachycardias, doing minimal activity or sometimes postural symptoms, changes in blood pressure. Chest pain is um, a very prominent feature and sometimes quite difficult to explain. Uh, and um, also problems with cognition, which is now described as brain fog. So difficulty multitasking, um, difficulty with memory and performing the sort of complex um, roles that they that they would have found easy previously. So really wide range of symptoms. And in terms of, you know, as, as we've all as a healthcare system understood this better, who should come to a specialist clinic? I think... Um, that's been quite challenging to answer um, in some ways because this is a, a novel disease. I think um, there is value in um, patients having access to uh, a, a good quality assessment and diagnostics. And I think the patient voice has been very much calling for that. But at the same time, um, as we learn which diagnostics are of value and which might actually lead into management changes or affect rehab plans, it's important that we stratify patients to go to the right point of care, uh, because it would be um, very easy to over-investigate this patient group uh, without it being useful to them. So um, in our own uh, system, we've been uh, fortunate to be working as a network really from early days. And uh, we've we've come to an approach where um, in terms of who should see us, it's really um, those who have red flag um, features which might affect um, their ability to safely enrol in a rehab or recovery programme or which might raise diagnostic uncertainty. Um, and also those whose symptoms are very severe um, such and disabling such that they are unable to work or, or close to being bedbound, unable to complete activities of daily living. And those patients can be quite disconcerting for community rehab programmes to help. And they do need uh, further investigation and diagnostics assessment to really start uh, putting them on the right track. So, like I say, it's it's to do with severity and then certain red flag symptoms. And what are those? Is it, is it chest yeah. pain, shortness of breath? Um... Yeah, so... 
anything that's going to put a community um, therapist um, or cause them concern and chest pain um, is definitely one that they do worry a lot about. And um, uh, syncope, pre-syncope, you know, dizziness is difficult. Uh, They're struggling with patients who have very severe post-exercise malaise. So some of our patients even, you know, they take their, their dog for a walk, they might end up in bed for a week later that that kind of profound fatigue is is difficult um and and uh, that they've that certainly our community services have really appreciated us being able to do an evaluation first um so i think those would be the main uh, okay. red flags and what's your i guess you, you i know you've gathered a lot of data so far and are continuing to do that um can you tell us anything more about say chest pain which i think i was talking yes. to someone just yesterday who's having chest pain yeah uh and you know what is there any sense of what the likelihood the mechanisms. is that, well a the mechanism would be that the likelihood that this is myocarditis or is it just usually That's unexplained right. or, or costochondritis or something yeah so i think you know we've all learned in medical school how to take a history about chest pain um and <laughs> Um, I think we can remember some of those important factors. But for example, with the costochondritis, you, you have that reassuring tenderness on, on palpation. And, um, and that is quite a common post-viral phenomenon. Um, so that, that's kind of reassuring. The chest pain that's, that's more worrying is one that uh, is exertional um, and perhaps it, that's associated with palpitations. Um, so, and, and then there's also the pericarditis type presentation where um, that might also be exertional or, or positional, you know, on leaning forward classically. So I think, um, and, and then chest pain that's very persistent and troublesome, um, you know, and, and sometimes we've been puzzled by the description of the chest pain and for reassurance, we've actually just arranged that cardiac imaging and we've we've always started with an echo and I must say that they are invariably normal, um, but then when we're still not really reassured we've progressed to a cardiac MRI which um, has quite a high incidence of showing myocarditis but often not severe and and in the resolving stages Um, but it it does at least give the patient some sort of clarity that that might have been contributing to their symptoms and it does mean that you would ask them to avoid any form of strenuous exercise for 12 weeks. I don't want to overstate the prevalence of of myocarditis but um, it is something that we are finding and I think because we've been investigating people quite late um, it it may be that if we saw them earlier uh, you know around the sort of 12-16 week we might see a higher prevalence of that. And maybe just to kind of maybe push you a bit more on, on as a GP, you know, obviously we can easily do an ECG and, as, and I've heard a BNP is, is, is often recommended, but, and it's a clinical judgment as to whether that's enough. But, um, you know, given that, you know, most people perhaps have some degree of chest pain, um, I guess you probably exactly. don't want us to refer every patient with chest pain, even, you know, uh, is it enough to do an ECG and a, and a BNP if, um, yes, you know, I, if I don't, to- I have to say, I don't think those tests are particularly sensitive to myocarditis. So there is a bit of clinical judgment here. Um, and if I suppose if it's if it's um, chest pain to the extent that it's, it's impairing their inability to try and follow a recovery programme, you're going to need some reassurance there. Because uh, I would say that the ECGs are often 
normal and even the troponins can be normal in in myocarditis so uh, and it may not change management and we're not seeing that on the cmrs that it that it impairs uh, cardiac function which is important to say in, in many of these um, long covid presentations so it's really difficult. Uh, we definitely need a lot more evidence um, to guide our practice in this area. Mm. I'm just pausing because I feel like <laughs> that's that's I've a just good, a created good, a so, load of confusion. No, no. Yeah. I mean, this is the bit that, that really get. I, I worked on the um, the long COVID BMJ paper that Trish Greenhouse did. I was just oh, on that, and I kept going back to this. I was constant, still not clear in my mind about things like chest pain and shortness of breath. And the, the response well, is always, you know, it's clinical judgment, you know, like a bit like you said, you know, this is kind of bread and butter, but at the same time for a GP, we don't have the the, the investigations that I think secondary care have to, to reassure themselves. I think it's incredibly um, difficult for GPs because this is a disease that we do not understand the mechanisms of. Um, and I I do believe that there is a mechanism. We've got some clues as to potential uh, underlying processes that are going wrong. Mm. And um, whilst it's easy to over-investigate people, I also think it's wrong to under-investigate them. And finding that right balance is something that we Mm. need to learn rapidly. And Mm. I think what's key at the moment is that GPs are able to get good quality advice from the post-COVID assessment service or the assessment network, however we, we structure it in each ICS, because I am learning stuff about this every week um, and I'm needing to seek advice myself from a wide range of specialists. I wouldn't want any patient to be denied a, a quality assessment just because of a pathway that we guess at being the right answer and we just don't know. veered off into chest pain quite a lot there I think that's something that particularly bothers me or I think find particularly difficult but no I agree I think it is it is very difficult and I I guess that I I suppose hearing that I feel that you know this is just something that's really difficult you know I'm not alone in finding it really challenging when I I see a patient and you know I, I think it's really hard for patients at the moment who are experiencing these long-term symptoms and for GPs as well, just having to navigate this kind of uncertainty of like what this symptom means, what could be causing it, will I get better, how long is this going to last, what's the best service um, for me, how, you know, all of these questions I feel are um, still, still, you know, we're learning a bit more, but they're still so up in the air. And I think that just feels uncomfortable for you know as mm. GP. So I think, yeah, in answer to your question, I think that that um, it just feels quite resonant. That's kind of my my experience as well. Is that it's very challenging, and I think you know some of these services are you know that are being set up these kind of post COVID assessment clinics. They're not there yet, and so I think GPs are left mm. um, are left kind of trying to help their patients as best they can in the interim. Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing where I work in South London is we don't have one of these clinics yet. There's one for people who have been discharged from ICU, but they won't accept referrals for patients not um, admitted. And uh, despite there being some nice guidelines that say they, they, they should exist in every every region. Um, and you just left, well, I think you probably need an echo or, or something that I, I guess I can request an echo, but that's not going to happen 
anytime soon. Uh, and so am I supposed to assume that you've got myocarditis? You know, don't exercise for 12 yeah. weeks. Um, and the patient's like, yeah, but that's the one thing that's keeping me going. You know, yeah. and, so, and these are not um, mm. small numbers of people. You know, I think I was just looking up that the ONS mm. survey um, in December estimated that one in 10 people um, who've had COVID are still having symptoms after 10 weeks. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, as we're sort of coming off a big surge in cases in the UK, that, you know, that number's just mm. going to, you know, the, the, we're going to be seeing mm. um, these patients and it's going to be having a massive impact on our, you know, on our communities. And yeah, I just, it would be yeah. good. I think, I think, as you said, right at the beginning of this episode, Tom, this is going to be something we're, we're clearly only going to scratch the surface for and we're going to have to return to as we learn more about... Um, what, what treatments are out there, if any, how, you know, and, and the impacts and, and all of that. So because I'm not seeing patients with mm. long COVID um, here in New Zealand, sorry. Um, I I wonder, is it is it that you're just caught between kind of Occam's razor of surely this symptom is explainable by one thing but and then the fear of missing something I mean there's a lot more Mm. here like clearly you know GPs and everybody else in the UK has gone through so much um, still going through so much but but what is it in particular that GPs right now are teasing out I think there is that. I think there's the, you know, we're seeing a lot of patients with these range of symptoms, obviously all unique and, and with differing um, characteristics. But, but like Melissa said, it's fatigue, breathlessness, some chest pain and, and that brain fog seems to be, to me, in my experience, at least the, mm-hmm. the, the common symptoms. Um, and on the one hand, like you say, like the simplest explanation is this is long COVID. Actually, we, we know from like Melissa's experience, that in most cases the investigations are normal, and so, and in because mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't have access to many investigations, then the, the obvious thing to do is just to to manage that way. But of course, the, the classic GP <laughs> pitfall, isn't it, is is of, of assuming that it's the, the common thing and missing the really important complication, and then um, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah so I mean, particularly because I think. The, the thing I struggle with, sorry, blah, blah, blah. Um, particularly the thing I struggle with is uh, I don't feel like we or maybe I don't know enough about the trajectory of it either. So it's like, well, when would I expect mm. if this was due to long COVID, when should it be getting better? And then when should I be thinking about an alternative diagnosis mm. or, you know, that safety netting, I think, is really difficult. Um, and, you know, the worry is that you're missing something. Yeah, like mm. a lung cancer, mm. for example, or, the, or, or something else that could be causing or anemia, whatever. Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to think about was, you know, when, when these services do exist, uh, actually, if, if we don't yet have treatments for the symptoms, we don't really know what the symptoms are caused by. It for, for the most part, what what are those? What access or what 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 do patients get when they go to one of these multidisciplinary clinics? Uh, and so Melissa put me onto this really interesting project that the English National Opera are running in conjunction with uh, Imperial College Healthcare, um, where they're helping patients with uh, these these breathing difficulties after COVID. 
Uh, and, and so I had a, a conversation with um, one of the people running that project. And, and so, yeah, we can hear all about that in, in a moment. But first, here's something from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medical legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. So now back to my interview with the English National Opera. Uh, I'm Jenny Mollica and I'm the director of ENO Bayless, which is the ENO's learning and participation programme. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, so I'm really interested to hear about this project, we call it a project that you're, you're running to help people who've got persistent symptoms of, of coronavirus or COVID-19. Can you tell me more about, uh, I suppose just, just in a nutshell, what it is first and then maybe how, how it came about? No problem. Um, well, ENO Breathe is a breathing and well-being programme for people who are still recovering from COVID, who have long COVID symptoms. So it's been specifically designed as a social pre- prescribing intervention um, and it uses singing, but it uses singing as a vehicle to supporting people to manage their breathlessness and anxiety. So we call it a breathing retraining through singing programme. And it's really important, actually, that people that in terms of kind of patient perspective, that it's not regarded as a singing group or a choir. You don't have to have mm. any interest in singing to take part in ENO Breathe. When you pair opera back as an art form and you really take it back to its kind of its roots, it's it's fundamentally rooted in breath. And we have this extraordinary wealth of expertise from our wind instrument players to our singers to our vocal coaches who all have this deep understanding of the physiology of breath and um, breath control. And that's really where the conversation started to emerge with GPs about how the ENO may have a skill set that could be relevant and useful in post-COVID recovery. And I, I guess thinking about the, the sort of symptoms that patients have described to me uh, with, you know, with long COVID or the, these persistent feeling of feeling breathless, uh, often, you know, I think typically you can do lots of investigations and we find, you know, find it difficult to find the underlying cause for that, but they're still left with this very... Um, often debilitating and, and frightening symptom of, of, of breathlessness or um, maybe not sitting in front of you so looking out of breath but that having that feeling um, yes and is that is that the idea then to to sort of retrain the the breathing to be able to breathe for longer like as an opera singer probably does when they're, when they're training or? 
exactly right, Tom. So we're mirroring the techniques that opera singers would use. And a lot of that is around um, noticing breath, being mindful of breathing, understanding how your breathing pattern works, but also uh, taking sort of, it's about full diaphragmatic breathing and making the most of what you've got. And um, I think we, one of the other things that's quite unique about the programme is that it's something sort of we call in our learning and participation work at ENO learning by stealth so actually all of the exercises that we're doing in the sessions have been uh, worked through with the team the respiratory team at Imperial so there there's a real rigor behind the intention behind the exercise but we frame it within um, a kind of imagine a more imaginative framework you're kind of immersed in the exercises and you're enjoying the experience of learning the lullabies together and uh but the, the the learning is happening underneath that but sort of by stealth and i think that's quite an important part of the way we approach it and that mirrors what opera singers do so they're often tricking their bodies into achieving certain things by having an emotional connection with a lyric or an emotional connection with what's happening in in the moment in an opera but they're tricking their bodies physiologically into achieving a certain outcome and i suppose we're mirroring that slightly with the eno breathe program so, yeah, how can GPs get uh, their patients this, this brilliant service? So any GP can refer their patient onto the programme. They need to have been assessed by their local post-COVID clinic. And there is kind of a strict medical criteria around the programme just to, just to ensure um, safety of participants coming onto the programme. But provided um, the patient meets the medical suitability for the programme, they can come onto it. And more information about that is available on our ENO Breathe website, which has full details of how GPs can get in touch with us and the medical criteria required for the programme. So Jenny Lovejoy, do you reckon this sounds like a, an interesting, useful thing to offer patients? I think it's really sweet. Do people know about this? Well, no, I think this, well, I think it's fairly new. I think they're just launching another, um, well, expanding the programme. I think as of this week, actually, uh, opening it up to, to more parts mm-hmm. of the UK. So I guess this is a bit of an exclusive <laughs> deep breath in, <laughs> uh, hearing about this. Uh, but they've been piloting it with with Imperial College Healthcare, and um, you know, actually, a, a bit on the the conversation I had with them that that we didn't get a chance to play there was telling me about some of the outcomes. Of course, it's this this wasn't um, a randomised controlled trial that they did; it's a preliminary outcomes. But they're saying the feedback they've been getting from patients is very very high levels of satisfaction, I suppose, uh, but also improvements in things like anxiety scores. Um, and um, a lot of people saying that at least that they're going to continue with with the, the tips and tools that they've learned from the programme. Yeah, I think it sounds absolutely fascinating. I did think we'd hear you doing a bit of a warm-up scale or something, Tom, but oh well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, yeah, I could do if you want to. <laughs> I've never heard you sing. Let me uh, reserve judgment. <laughs> well, no, I'll spare you that. But we have got a clip because I, I guess what, what's the most helpful way of really kind of picturing this is I, I actually asked if they could run us through one of the things they do on, on the programme. Oh, awesome. So, so let's have a listen to one of the exercises, shall we? 
Hello, my name is Susie Zumper and I'm the creative director of ENO Breathe. Um, this is a little exercise that we use to help participants to focus on their breath and it's called Countdown to Calm. Um, it'll help you breathe in with a real awareness that you're breathing in and to breathe out knowing that you're breathing out. Um, and the reason for that is because our participants can get in a terrible tangle um, about breathing and just a kind of physical awareness of what's going on. And this is a great way to anchor them in the present moment, um, especially when they might be feel, feeling overwhelmed. Um, so just begin by noticing your breath because everything starts with that. So just um, be aware of your spine being lovely and long and notice the depth of your breaths. Notice whether they're shallow or full. Just be aware of the rhythm and the pace. And there isn't really a right or wrong way to do this. It's just really important that you start with an awareness. Um, so for this exercise, what I want you to do is to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth. And what we're going to do is focus on counting the breaths as they go. And I'm going to count for us. Although if you were leading this for yourself, you'd just do it in your head. So I want you to breathe in and you're going to breathe in. We're going to start at 10. So you're going to breathe in number 10. Ready? So breathing in 10. Breathing out 10. Breathing in 9. Breathing out 9. Breathing in 8. Breathing out 8. Breathing in seven, breathing out seven, breathing in six, breathing out six, breathing in five, breathing out five, breathing in four, breathing out four. Breathing in three, breathing out three, breathing in two, breathing out two, breathing in one, and breathing out one. Fantastic. And because I was leading that for you, your focus um, probably didn't drift. But when you're doing it for yourself, you might find that your focus drifts. And at the moment that you notice that, you can just make a point of bringing it back and starting the count again at 10. Um, and if it's really easy for you to get all the way to one without losing focus, then you can start at a higher number next time. And this exercise is just a great way to get in touch with your breath and to feel that you are in charge rather than the hunger for air being in control. I feel like we've just been in a yoga class. Yeah, that did feel very yogi. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you can really see the kind of mindfulness influence there as well, can't you? The kind of component of that um, that's in there. Yeah, it's, I'm feeling very relaxed, <laughs> finally, which is lovely. Maybe we should have her on every every episode, just to, or as a warm up uh, for us. Um, it's it's. Uh, I, I mean, it, it does make you wonder or think about the, the the basis for the breathing, the problems that people are having. Um, 
you know, I suppose when you when you first assess a patient with long COVID or with difficulties breathing, you know, I don't know, four weeks after having a COVID infection, of course, there's a whole range of differentials there, aren't there? Um, but it does seem, a, you know, for, for those patients who are fortunate enough, I suppose, to get a full assessment, very often there's, there's it's not a PE, it's not, maybe it's not myocarditis or, or any of those things. But so you do wonder what, what, what is it? And I guess this, does this imply that this is a sort of dysfunctional breathing that we're dealing with? Oh, that's such a good question. And I don't, I don't know is the answer. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think, um, I mean, one thing I, I sort of remember learning many years ago was about, you know, in people who are feeling breathless, uh, you know, and typically I think the stereotype is, you know, an asthmatic who's experiencing kind of a, an exacerbation that, you know, that there's the, the breathlessness can be exacerbated by your kind of own, you know, anxiety and just how, you know, terrifying it, it must be to, to feel that breathless. Mm-hmm. And that can kind of, um, that can kind of add another layer as well. And so, I mean, who knows, like, does that symptom then get worse because of the way we're sort of passing it? Um, I don't know, but I can totally see the value of exercises like this in, in helping. I was remembering the same thing from our was it the very first episode of Deep Breath In, um, talking about the symptoms of COVID and the anxiety component, really. And if, I mean, I feel more calm after listening to that and, okay, I'm kind of an anxious person, but didn't have like struggling to breathe anxiety. Um, And I have to imagine that would help. Mm. Of course, this is something that we can offer to people, but but only really once we've been able to rule out you know, those really important, you know, and, and treatable uh, causes of, of breathlessness, for instance, uh, a PE. Um, and I suppose it, it is, I find it is helpful because often it, when, you, when you've done that ruling out, it feels like there's, there's maybe little we can offer uh, and, and anxiety does, is often a, a, a significant component of, of that. And that bit at the end where she said about you're regaining that control over that the gasping for, for breath, which um, must be must make a difference. Oh, I can see that would make a difference. Mm-hmm. This kind of social prescribing, um, as we'll hear next week, a little teaser for our next episode there, um, can be really helpful in terms of people's mental health, um, which includes anxiety. And so a teaser is probably a good place to, to end this episode. Uh, and so we'll be back next time with... Uh, a closer look at lockdown depression and some of the impacts that lockdown is having on on particularly people's mental health. So thank you to today's guests. That's Jenny, Susie and Melissa. Uh, thank you as well and goodbye to uh, Navjoy. See you next time. See you, Tom. And Jenny, see you next time. Thank you. Until next time. And I want to add a special thanks in this episode to Duncan Jarvis, our producer, because we've re-recorded <laughs> segments of this about 10 times. Um, and, uh, so thank you for, for editing all our terrible uh, mistakes out. Duncan is our hero. <laughs> So as I said at the start of the episode, please get in touch, particularly if you're um, somebody who's had long COVID or have a suggestion for something you'd like us to cover on that topic or anything else. 
you can email us at uh, practice at bmj.com. And as every podcast you've ever listened to says, please subscribe uh, and rate us uh, and let us know your feedback, share and tell everyone about us so we can uh, reach as many people as possible. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.